number two of the Armstrong and Getty show, but Armstrong and Getty, they are away. They will be back live and better than ever on Monday. Until then, we're in the very capable hands of one John Phillips. Well, thank you so much. Yes, it is John Phillips on loan from Talk Radio 790 KABC in Los Angeles, where you can listen to me from noon to 3 p.m. If you're not in L.A., you can get me online at kabc.com. You can also read me in the pages of all the Southern California news group papers, which are the L.A. Daily News, the O.C. Register, the Riverside Press Enterprise, and most importantly, the Redlands Daily Facts. In for the dynamic duo this morning, they'll be back with you, keeping you entertained on Monday. There's a lot of news today going on about the virus, the shutdowns, the lockdowns, all points in between. Here to help us understand all of it is trauma surgeon, expert on mass casualties, former chief medical officer for Harris, who you can follow on Twitter at Dr. Kelly Victory. Dr. Kelly Victory, welcome. Hey, John. Thanks very much for the invitation. Now, I'm going to play a piece of sound for you because this sound makes my head explode. Because one of the things that we've been told by Flip-Flop Fauci and others for a long period of time is just wait until the vaccine comes out. Wait until the vaccine comes out. It's going to be a game changer. There's light at the end of the tunnel and all of those other phrases. And the vaccine is finally being distributed in a few live in states like West Virginia. It's being distributed in a competent way. If you live in states like California, stick around for the Christmas season because it's going to be a while. But now the vaccine is out and being put in people's arms. People like me are saying, all right, can we finally open up the economy again? Jen Psaki, the new press secretary for President Joe Biden, says not so fast. It's not just a vaccine, it's obviously an incredible medical breakthrough, um, and we want every American to have one. But even after you're vaccinated, uh, social distancing, wearing masks are going to be essential, and we'll we'll, we'll need to continue communicating about that through health and medical experts. So vaccine or no vaccine, we're all going to look like Michael Jackson in an airport in perpetuity. Well, this is so distressing, John, because regardless of how you feel about the vaccine itself, and I have lots to say about these particular vaccines, as well as the rollout that's happening around the country, but regardless of how you feel about vaccines, you have to acknowledge that people expect and have every reason to expect that once having been vaccinated, they should be able to return to some level of normalcy. After all, that's why we get vaccinated. Once you're vaccinated, vaccinated for hepatitis or meningitis or chickenpox or polio or whatever the else heck it is, you have every reason to believe that, number one, you will be protected. Everyone knows it's not 100 percent, but we certainly allow you to mainstream back into society, assuming that you are not contagious or at risk of infecting others or becoming infected yourself. So this is the consummate Charlie Brown, Lucy, and the football. They keep lining it up and over and over again fooling us. It began, as everyone recalls, now a year ago with two weeks, to, you know, locked down for two weeks to you know, flatten the curve. And here we are a year later still doing this. Then it became, well, we need more PPE. And then once we get the PPE, that didn't change anything. Then it became, well, we need to you know, hit this metric or that metric. And then it became all about the vaccines. Well, the vaccines are here, despite the naysayers who claimed that it couldn't possibly be done in the, uh, in the speed with which it was. Yet, once again, 
Now, once you get vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask. You still have to socially distance. You still are being told that you can both contract the illness and still spread it. Well, that's preposterous. It defies everything we know scientifically about vaccines. If you follow this logic that we can't go back to normal, even after the population is vaccinated, when do you think we'll be able to go back to seeing Major League Baseball games in person in packed stadiums or going to concerts or going on cruise ships or going to your local bar and having a drink? Well, taking no joy in the prediction or in in possibly being right about it, John, I fear that many of these things may never go back to normal. Um, Ultimately, we will see some reopening of society, including things like bars and restaurants. But I think some things will never change. You may constantly see servers wearing masks or gloves. You may always see a change in the way that we have seating at concerts and sporting events, uh, you know, leaving more room between people. And that's probably the most insidious Um, fallout from this entire pandemic response is that people have developed and been told they should develop a healthy fear of their fellow man. Uh, I watched the way children passed me in a grocery store and they cut me a wide berth as if I'm typhoid Mary. Um, (laughs) They they won't come anywhere near you. Children have sort of a skeptical eye as, you know, don't look at me, don't come near me. My parents said people are very scary and dangerous. Um, And it's it's terrifically frightening. Um, So when will things really go back? I think the first things you'll see is return to schools. And hopefully, for the love of God, we have got to get our children back for in-person learning. That's one of the most stupid things that has happened of all of this, because children, as hopefully everybody knows by now, are at essentially zero risk of contracting this virus. They not only don't contract it, but they don't spread it. And we have known that now for a long time, well into uh, last year. By the middle of last year, we knew that. And we had the proof of it from other countries that had opened and gone back to school, places like France and Sweden uh, that opened up very early on. We are continuing to see evidence of that from places like Florida and Texas and South Dakota and those states that are allowing in-person learning. So hopefully that's one of the first things that will happen. Then we will see some easing, as I said, for small businesses, I hope, uh, reopening of some of the bars and restaurants, at least at some capacity, and stopping this silliness of having bans on outdoor dining and those sorts of things. But it isn't going to happen anytime soon because I really believe that a huge percentage, tragically, of our population has internalized all of this stuff and has bought in really without asking the the most obvious questions into things like the idea that you should still wear a mask and socially distance after you've been vaccinated or this idea that asymptomatic people are spreading the disease, one of the greatest myths of all. Uh, And until those things are busted, those myths are busted, I fear we've got uh, more pain to come. In addition to being a trauma surgeon, you have worked in corporate America for many years, being the chief medical officer for big companies like Continental Airlines, Harris, Walgreens. If you're sitting in that corporate boardroom after Jen Psaki said what she said yesterday, and these CEOs and CFOs and boards of directors are trying to figure out 
how to plan for the future for these giant multinational corporations. And they are looking to you for advice to explain to them what Jen Psaki meant when she said that as it relates to their company. What are you telling them? You know, I've got to tell you, John, because I have sat in that seat. I was the chief medical officer for some very large companies and was at the helm, for example, of Continental Airlines during the SARS pandemic and helping them to manage their business continuity. One of the marks of a great business leader is the ability to be nimble and the ability to uh, to change directions based on what's happening uh, in real time. All of that said, one is never intended to thought it was going to be a ping pong match where it goes back and forth so quickly that you are really hard pressed to change directions fast enough to keep up with the mandates and the restrictions and the lockdowns. Honestly, all of these companies are trying to reinvent themselves and constantly come up with new distribution channels, new ways of allowing their businesses to stay in some way afloat. Many of them have been able, have the good fortune to allow some of their folks or the majority of their people to work from home. And that certainly includes people in high tech industries, certainly uh, in, in much of media. Many of us who are doing lots of radio and television haven't had a significant change in our ability to do those things. Uh, the tragedy are more the small businesses and the entertainment and hospitality uh, industries that have been absolutely decimated by this. And I would be hard-pressed to advise one of these companies because it changes so quickly. You can't ask companies to say you can reopen as long as you do these things, as long as you put up plexiglass shields and stickers on the floor that remind people to stay six feet apart and limit your capacity to 25%, and then 24 hours later change all of that. And say, no, it's actually, you know, 50%. You can do 50% as long as we hit these metrics and as long as people wear gloves and face shields. And then 24 hours later saying, oh, no, people need two masks, not one. Uh, and face shields are out and goggles are in. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. You've got to come up with a cogent plan, say, here's what we're going to do based on something that resembles, quote, unquote, science. And then stick with it and wait until you have a credible source of other data that would give you a reason to change directions. Uh, I don't see that happening at all at the highest levels in public health. And I believe when, when history looks back on this, we will not be judged kindly. There's a scrum going on right now in all 50 states as to who should be offered the vaccine first. In states with powerful public employee unions, groups like teachers unions are saying, we all need to be vaccinated before we go back to work. In some cases, the teachers unions are even saying that all of the students need to be vaccinated along with the teachers and the support staff before on-campus instruction can resume. If you were the one making the decision, who gets the vaccine first, who should get it first, and where should groups like the teachers land on the list? You know, John, this strikes at the very heart of our true values. Uh, in most countries that are currently deploying vaccine, those people who are at most risk of dying or getting seriously ill from the virus, nursing home residents and those people who are caring for them, medical workers and the elderly, those are the ones who are at the first at the queue. 
In the U.S., however, because we we don't do things that way, people start falling to the pressures from interest groups. We are now starting to argue about whether or not we should inoculate people who don't fall into the highest risk categories, but instead people who we are trying to assign some preferential value to, whether that's teachers or farm workers or people who believe that they are more important to the uh, ongoing functioning of the economy. So there are people arguing that, yes, elderly are at higher risk of dying, um, but they aren't as important to the ongoing of the economy because they're no longer in the workforce. I think that truly, if we apply good public health standards, we can do more than one thing at the same time. It makes common sense to be inoculating those people who are at the highest risk of dying or becoming significantly ill. And that remains people over the age of 65, clearly people in nursing homes or assisted living facilities, healthcare workers who are at high risk because of their exposures and because we can't afford to have them not at work because they're home in bed sick, and then go on from there. Teachers, despite how critical they are to getting our kids back to school, simply don't fall largely into the risk category. The average age of workers, or excuse me, of teachers in the United States is somewhere around the age of 42. And unless they have underlying health conditions, and some of them do, they shouldn't likely be at the front of the line. And that would be the same for other people who are critical workers, whether you work at Costco or the grocery store, uh, or you're an Uber driver. If you're otherwise young and healthy, you simply don't fall into a high-risk category. And again, that's where this response effort went largely off the rails from the beginning, which was by acting as if everyone as at equivalent risk from this virus, rather than understanding that most people, if you're under 65 and don't have one of the well-defined risk factors, is not at significant risk from becoming profoundly ill from COVID-19, and you have time to wait. And then furthermore, we have not focused on the idea that we have a significant and growing number of early treatment options, uh, things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and steroids and azithromycin and a host of other things that many of us have been using successfully, uh, rather than uh, convincing people that their only hope in hell of surviving is to cower in their basement with their vat of Purell hand sanitizer until it's their turn to get vaccinated. Last question before you go, because this is so important. In addition to those therapeutics that you can use early on if you contract COVID, one of the things that you can do proactively to prevent yourself from getting it, or if you do get it, to have a response that can can really help you uh, work your way through it, is by taking vitamins that will boost your immune system. Can you make recommendations to the audience as to what vitamins they should be taking? Absolutely. And this is, uh, again, one of the great tragedies in public health with this response is that no one has been highlighted, other than myself and some others, but nobody at high levels in public health has been talking about this. There are many things that you can and should be doing, by the way, not just during this COVID pandemic, but during every cold and flu season, because there are ways that we can enhance the functioning of our own immune systems in significantly 
decrease your risk of ever contracting a virus, whether that's COVID, influenza, common colds, or anything else. And those things include vitamin D. A vast majority of Americans are vitamin D deficient. Upwards of 80% of African Americans are, 50% of Hispanics, and 30% of Caucasians are low in vitamin D. So taking 3,000 to 5,000 IUs of vitamin D daily is recommended. Supplementing vitamin C. You can't overdose on vitamin C. So taking a gram of vitamin C All daily. Right. Oh, and then zinc. Get your 50 milligrams of zinc, John. Dr. Kelly Victory, thank you so much for stopping by. We learn so much every time we chat. Sounds great, John. Thanks for having me. And you can follow Dr. Kelly on Twitter at Dr. Kelly Victory. It's John Phillips in for Armstrong and Getty. More coming up. It's John Phillips on loan from Talk Radio 790 KABC in Los Angeles in for Armstrong and Getty. It has been a gangbusters day on Wall Street. The stock market is way up. S&P 500, NASDAQ, you name it. Jason Moser from The Motley Fool is going to stop by and explain all of this to us in moments. It's John Phillips in for Armstrong and Getty. Much more coming up. Don't go anywhere. Sean here with you on a Friday edition of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty are out for the day. They will be back on Monday. But guiding us through the news today as our news Sherpa, the crazy headlines, it's John Phillips. Well, thank you so much, Positive Sean. It is me, John Phillips, Sean Lone from Talk Radio 790 KABC in Los Angeles, where you can listen to me each weekday from noon to 3 if you're in L.A. or online at kabc.com and read my column in the pages of the L.A. Daily News, OC Register, and the rest of the Southern California News Group papers. So happy to be invited to sit in for Armstrong and Getty today. And, oh, boy, is it a day for investors. Listen to this positive, Sean, because I hear uh, you are you're like the Monopoly man. You look at the Wall Street Journal every day, you've got the monocle and the top hat, and this is your game. I pick winners, if, if, if that's what you're asking. Well, I'm going to make you very, very happy. U.S. equity markets hit record highs this morning after the Senate paved the way for President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 aid package, and the jobs report showed a drop in the unemployment rate. The Dow Jones Industrial Average climbed 170 points, while the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ Composite advanced uh, 0.48% and 0.29% respectively. Both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ Composite were trading in record territory, while the Dow was just below its own peak. Also, lending support to equities, a boost in West Texas intermediate oil prices, which topped $57 per barrel this morning, giving energy stocks a lift. It is good news across the board if you are an investor today, Positive Sean. Lovely. Love hearing that. 
All right. Let's bring in an expert who can break it down even more for us. He's an analyst with The Motley Fool, who you can follow on Twitter at JM. Wait a minute. I have it wrong here. You can tell us what it is, Jason Moser. Jason, what's your Twitter? <laughs> uh, TMFJMO. How's it TMFJMO. Going? Okay. Until you get kicked yeah. off Twitter like the rest of us. <laughs> it seems like it could happen. It's it's, it's getting kind of hairy out there. Oh, with you, absolutely. All right. Now, <laughs> what is going on on Wall Street today? Because these numbers are eye-popping. Yeah, you know, it feels like, honestly, we are in this little Goldilocks zone where it's just everything is just about right. Um, you know, you mentioned energy prices. I mean, energy prices aren't really too low. They're not really exorbitantly high. They're kind of just like right in that nice place where it's affordable for consumers and, and it's making it a little bit more economical for energy companies. Uh, clearly, there's going to be some measure of stimulus that's coming through here soon. We're on the tail end of this pandemic. I mean, vaccines are rolling out. Um, they're, they're just, there's a lot really, I think, to look forward to. I mean, granted, it's, it's just the beginning of February, but there's there's plenty of positive stuff to look forward to. And, and we know the market, obviously, is a forward-looking mechanism. And and you, you couple all of that with really no sign of inflation. And, and you've just got this perfect combination, I think, for investors right now, where a lot of these companies are really just shining. We're seeing – we're in the middle of earnings season, so we're seeing a lot of these companies recording – really impressive growth numbers. I mean, the revenue is really where you want to focus, and, and revenue growth is there. I mean, a lot of these companies are still growing, and when we see that, that's telling us really all we need to know. Is there one thing that's driving this surge in the stock market, or was it just a confluence of any number of pieces of good news that just all happened to hit on the same day? Well, I mean, it's you know we, we certainly don't look at the day-to-day in the market and say, well, today the market's up because of this and to, because tomorrow it could be down, right? I mean, the market day to day is a little bit, uh, is a little bit difficult to predict. And then, you know, I mean, we, we talk all the time and that's the way we invest at, at the Motley Pool is, is very much a long-term focus, focusing on good businesses and taking a years long approach. I, I think that generally speaking, when you look at where the market is today, let's think about just where we were um, almost a year ago, right? I mean, it was, it was March to April where we, you know, bottom fell out. It really, it was hard to imagine a year ago that we would be where we are right now. And I, I think that it's really just a confluence of a lot of things. I mean, we are finally at a point here where, you know, where you can start kind of looking forward and thinking things will get better. I mean, it, it's as simple as even looking at the restaurant space. Think about restaurants, for example. I mean, restaurants have been one of the hardest hit markets here in during this entire time. Um, and, and we're going to start entering into some warmer months here in the spring. We should be able to see consumer traffic pick up in a lot of different areas with warmer weather because we'll have some outdoor options. Uh, so, yeah, just it seems like a confluence of events that really have investors excited. And uh, that obviously has, has me excited given what I do for a living. <laughs> You know, it's funny. People in our industry, people in the media, people who work in the finance industry, Wall Street, banking industry, they haven't missed a paycheck. They've just been maybe working from home or they've been working in a different capacity, but they have been able to complete their their regular day-to-day duties. But they can't spend any money anywhere. 
It's not like you can take your family on a cruise. It's not like you can yeah. take your family to Disneyland. It's not like you can load the kids in the car and go to the movie theater and drop a hundred bucks on movie tickets and refreshments. What have people been doing in that position? The white collar people with the white collar jobs. What have they been doing with their money since they can't spend it? Have they been spending it on different things? Spending it on Amazon? Spending it on on uh, you know different things on the internet? Or have they been saving and investing that money, and when things open up, they're going to go on a spending spree like they just were a contestant on The Price is Right? <laughs> well, they're doing a, they've been doing a little bit of both, actually. That's, 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 the, that's the honest answer. And I think uh, if we rewind back just several months, I mean, we saw the personal saving rate here in the United States uh, top almost 34%, which was just absurdly high, beyond any, any sort of norm that we've ever seen. That made a lot of sense, right? We had the... Uh, a lot of folks, like you said, haven't, haven't really been able to spend. Uh, folks like us who've been very fortunate to be able to stay employed and keep uh, bringing bringing money in. It, spending has gone down because the options aren't quite the same. Uh, but now what we've seen is over time here coming into 2021, that, that, that personal savings rate has sort of fallen back down to, to norms. Part of that was the holiday season. Uh, but But like you said, there are a lot of different uh, substitutes out there today that, that didn't exist years ago. Right. And that's one of the things we saw um, through this past year. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that the pandemic is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but there are good things that have come from this. And, and one of the good things that has come from this is this, it, it's really accelerated the move towards this digital economy uh, that, that was already, it was already taking root. Uh, but but this really accelerated that move. And, and you look back to April, I think it was, of 2020, when Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella actually said, you know, we've seen two years worth of digital transformation pulled forward into essentially two months. And, and we saw a lot of businesses really do that out of necessity, right? It was either do that or or go away. And and so we've seen a lot of, of, of new ways of doing business here thanks to the internet, thanks to mobile technology, and um, and I think that's something that's going to continue. Now, the interesting part is that when things start to slowly open back up and people feel a little bit more at ease going out, I think the travel industry is certainly uh, poised to pick back up. I think people are going to want to take trips and vacations, and and that'll be another another way for consumers to spend their money as as they feel like uh, you know getting out of the house. You know, if you look at the trades, you look at the cruise industry trades, for example, sales for cruises at the end of this year and in next year are very strong. They are having absolutely mm-hmm. no problem selling cruises. Their problem is the CDC won't let them operate. Well, there's a yeah. they lifted the no sale order, but there's effectively a no sale order that's that's not allowing them to operate. When you look at, at the sales numbers for 2022 and you're an investor, is that a sign of confidence between the customers and that industry that that industry will come back when they're allowed to resume? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, you know we know that we know that this this pandemic is, has impacted everybody in all sorts of different ways, but I think it's given virtually everybody a good a good dose of cabin fever, and um, everybody feels like they're ready to get back out and do something, whether it's attending sporting events or going to amusement parks or taking cruises or, or traveling. And, and so you can certainly see through the, the numbers, the numbers really do tell the tale there. And, and, and yeah, I mean, to, to a degree, these cruise liners, for example, I mean, they really need to do everything they can to 
get those trips booked, to create that interest and to get people back out there and spending, even if they're buying those tickets in advance. That is an indicator, at least, of some pent-up demand that will be uh, coming our way here in, in later 2021 and, and into 2022. Uh, so, so, yeah, it, it, to me, that's a surefire sign that people are, are antsy to get back out. And, and I do think that based on everything we know today, it really does sound like it's just a matter of time here. Um, and, and we're going to be able to start doing that. And it sounds like many consumers are going to be in a good position to have some uh, disposable income to, to, to spend. Another sector that's held up strong through the pandemic is real estate. Even though patterns have changed, people are working from home, people no longer have to live in big cities if they can work from home. They can live in other parts of the country that might have a lower cost of living. Uh, They might have better schools. They might have lower crime, uh, fewer homeless people, that sort of thing. Yet real estate in places like San Francisco and Oakland and Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle, has held up strong. What's the feeling on Wall Street about real estate in those big cities? Do, do, do investors believe that there's going to be some kind of correction coming to that world, or do they believe it's just going to go up even higher? Well, I think that, you know, in looking at this and in, in, in talking about that narrative of saying, okay, well, we're going to work remotely. Now you can live anywhere and, and work from anywhere. I mean, to a degree, that's true. I, I, I don't think that's going to be something that we see that's necessarily widespread. I mean, I, 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 there are a lot of a lot of leaders out there, a lot of CEOs out there to, today that, you know, leaders we admire. I mean, Reed Hastings, for example, Netflix, I mean, by all, by all accounts, that's probably a business that could, in theory, just run on the Internet. They just work from anywhere and, um, and, and probably make things happen okay. But, but Hastings, he had an interview a little while back in the Wall Street Journal where, I mean, he, he was adamant about getting back into the office, right? I mean, he thinks, you know, having that option to be able to work remotely is great. It's something that you can add to the mix and sort of have a hybrid. Um, but going full-fledged remote, it's not going to work in every case. And so I think that we tend to look at these things early on in, in the terms of absolutes. And, and that's probably not really the right way to look at it. It's going to be a healthy mix of, of both working from home and working in the office. I think the demand in, in markets like L.A. and San Francisco, I live here in, in Fairfax Station, Virginia, where it's, it's essentially the same thing. Uh, I mean, real estate has just held up tremendously here. And, uh, you know, I, I don't see that changing even when folks can work from home. I mean, like I could work from home. I mean, we've been working from home ever since they closed down Full HQ last March. Um, a lot of people are anxious to get back to the office. And maybe it'll be something where we kind of uh, maintain a hybrid model from home sometimes and, and work uh, in the office sometimes. But I think a lot of these a lot of these high demand real estate markets, maybe there will be incrementally less demand, but I don't know if that's going to have a big impact on prices to the downside. I don't think you'll see, you know, astounding bidding of real estate prices up to the moon, but, but I think they'll hold pretty steady in those, in those uh, strong markets. How important is it to Wall Street to get children back at school so you have all of these people, all of these workers who have been taken out of the workforce because they now have to provide child care who would then be ready to go back to work and perform their duties. That's extremely important. I mean, it's, it's important not just to Wall Street, but really, I think, to 
to the families, to the children. I mean, we've been sitting here in Northern Virginia. Where they've, they've had our girls out of school for a year now. Um, I mean, they've been they've been working, uh, doing doing their schooling from home, and it's it's driven a lot, a lot of a lot of families to the brink. I mean, we saw a lot of pressure from families here recently on the school board, essentially demanding. I mean, there are examples all over the country of, of schools that have been back in session now for a while, and they're making it work wonderfully. Uh, so it's kind of curious to me as to why school boards don't just look at those examples and say, "Hey, let's just copy what they're doing and make it work." Uh, but I guess it's just everybody's a little bit different on how they view this. Um, it's no doubt that it's going to be something that helps the economy uh, to a degree when folks are able to get back to some sort of a normal schedule uh, where they don't have to juggle so many balls and make concessions here and there on hours worked or or potential jobs uh, that they that they would take that they couldn't take otherwise. Um, so so I think that not only for Wall Street, I mean, that's going to be something that's important for everyone. And, and, and that. And that certainly will will result in economic activity that flows through uh, here in the back half of the year and on into 2022. Now, positive Sean follows Warren Buffett around the country like he's the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and he's got a question for you. Positive Sean, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, as, as me, the average retail investor, let's say a company winds up on my radar, what are the first two or three things that I should learn about that company before deciding whether or not I should jump in on it? That is a very good question. And that's, you know, that is, that's something where I, I incorporate that mentality into my investing philosophy as well, Sean. It's sort of the, the, the checklist that I have where if I, if I find a company that I'm interested in, there are a few things that I need to know before I go any further. I need to answer these questions. I mean, first and foremost, what does the company do, right? And do I understand what it does? And, and if I can make sense of that, well, then I can take the next step, understand how it actually makes its money. Right. Because I think it's, it's something that a lot of folks can just bypass and thinking, well, you know, it just makes money. But understand exactly how it makes money. Is it one time? Is it subscription? Um, and then from there, understand the market opportunity that actually exists for what they do. Uh, if you can put together those ideas of understanding the business itself, understanding how it makes its money, and then getting a better idea of how big the market opportunity is that it's pursuing, that can really lead you to asking additional questions that will help you uh, answer whether you really should be considering adding that business to your portfolio or not. And that's why I'm a member of the JMO Investing Dojo. Excellent. Hey, now. <laughs> Love to hear it. All right, Jason Moser, analyst with The Motley Fool. It's a very busy day for you. Thank you so much for making time for us. You guys have a great weekend. All right, you too. You can get them online at fool.com, which I believe they bought from Mr. T. More coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. It's me, John Phillips, sitting in. Don't go anywhere. And it's yours truly, John Phillips, on loan from Talk Radio 790 KABC in Los Angeles, in for Armstrong and Getty. Positive, Sean, I don't know if you've seen this, but the CDC is recommending that none of us consume alcohol during the Super Bowl. Because if we do, they think as we get tipsier and tipsier, we will be less likely to follow their COVID rules. I don't I, I I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Oh. <laughs> I mean I, I I get the the theory that they're thinking on but that's just it's that's lunacy and if 
you're already at a small gathering with family and friends, right? Like it's already kind of a closed circuit there. I, I don't know. If you're at a sports bar, I guess maybe that could. Uh, that, it's not your job to protect me from myself, government. I feel the same way about my scotch on the rocks that Charlton Heston feels about his gun. They can take it out of my cold, dead hands. Don't drink during the Super Bowl. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'll get right on that. All right. Now, I have another piece of Super Bowl trivia for you. Are you ready for it? Yes. Okay. I'm 0 for 1 so far. Yes. Now, this one's a yes or no. Is Super Bowl Sunday the highest day of food consumption in the United States? I'll say, ooh, I don't, huh. Thanksgiving's got to be up there. Okay, so I'll say yes. I'll say yes. You say yes, that Super Bowl Sunday is the highest day of food consumption in the United States. Yes, in traditional times, yeah, I'll say yes. You should have gone with your gut. Dang it! Super Bowl ah. Sunday is the second highest day of food consumption in the U.S. behind only Thanksgiving, according to the United Food and Commercials Workers Union. Like, clearly the turkey is bigger than anything consumed on Super Bowl Sunday, but I thought we'd reach, like, a critical mass of chicken wings or something. Well, wings specifically seem to be hotter than ever. The National Chicken Council's annual report speculates that Americans will devour a record 1.42 billion wings on Super Bowl Sunday this year, up 2% from 2020. So wings, positive Sean, are more popular than ever. Got to see if wings are publicly traded. (laughs) What kind of sauce do you like? Are you a spicy guy? No, I go the barbecue. I also like an occasional teriyaki wing. I don't know if you ever had those. Oh, yeah, Buffalo Wild Wings. It's like basketed robins. You can try all the flavors. It's John Phillips in for Armstrong and Getty.